Ephesians in chapter one, the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You can take a seat. I was 15 years old when I remember wanting to give something up to know God more. I was at our annual youth camp and our youth pastor, that's a visual for you. Still looking good, huh? What was that, like four years ago? Anyway. I was at our annual youth camp and our youth pastor talks about how there are things in our lives on our journey with Jesus that can keep us from having more of God. And those things he said weren't necessarily bad, they were just things that sometimes can occupy our time and our affections that would otherwise be given to God. And I vividly remember the room that night, it was really dark, and my heart as he was speaking just began to race, to beat out of my chest. You see, for as long as I can remember, I have wanted more of God. And even though I didn't understand what this would mean, I knew that if there was a pathway to it, I was going to follow. And, and so our youth pastor goes on and he, that night, uh, begins to invite us um, to ask God, what, what might be keeping us from more of Jesus in our life? And then what would it look like to make space for more of God in our tiny teenage lives? And everyone's response was really different that night. Obviously, uh, people were all over the spectrum, but most had something that they knew they wanted to lay down. So, the Wednesday after we all got back from youth camp, totally hyped, um, we all brought the things that God had showed us. And some people brought literal things, other people brought things that were more symbolic. Mine was a really good soundtrack from Runaway Bride featuring the Dixie Chicks. <laughs> the things we do when we're young. And no joke, we put all of those things in a coffin. It was the early 2000s and youth group <laughs> culture was on a whole other level. Are you with me? Yeah. And the truth is that that sounds a little silly, but um, in that moment, as we laid those things in the coffin, um, we said yes to whatever was next, to whatever more looked like. Now, I know, I, I really do know that sounds really silly. I even kept trying to rewrite this little paragraph so it wouldn't sound so ridiculous and weird, but there was no way to do that. Uh, the truth is, that night, as silly as it was, uh, was a marked moment. And it wasn't just for me, it was for about another 100 other students as well. That night shaped how we, a group of awkward teenagers in Daytona Beach, Florida, would come to know and experience the true life and power of Jesus over the next three years. It shaped the miracles we saw, and we did see miracles. It shaped the community that was formed. It shaped the love that we shared with others and experienced ourselves. It was for us the birthplace of a kingdom reality of life that for almost all of us hasn't stopped. Today, uh, like Gerald mentioned earlier, we're kicking off our new summer series called Ephesians Immeasurably More. 
And together, we're going to walk line by line through the book of Ephesians. Now, if you're new to it, you should know that this book is actually written by a man named Paul, an apostle of Jesus, who was actually in prison and writing these letters to a place or a church in a town called Ephesus. And it's broken down into two major parts, and we'll, we'll hit the first one, we'll kind of lean into it next week, and then we'll, we'll finish the second half, the second half of the summer. But each of those sections of the book are held together by a prayer. And the first part of the book, as some scholars put it, is in the stars. It's kind of the cosmic view of the gospel, while the other half is in the dirt. Meaning that the first part is centered around the narrative or the story that Jesus told about what's on offer in the kingdom. And the second part is how we actually live out and into that reality day to day. Now in this series, we're going to immerse ourselves in this letter, which means that if we're really going to understand it, we're going to have to know everything we can about the people on the other end receiving it. We'll need to know what was in Paul's mind and heart and what was going on in Ephesus that he was so eager to speak to. So we're gonna do that today. Now, in order for us to get the answer to those questions, we're gonna have to start at the beginning of their story, which is actually in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Acts chapter 19. Now, as you're turning there, here's a few things you need to know about the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was the epicenter of worship for Greek and Roman gods, particularly the Greek god of fertility, Artemis. Here she is, gorge. <laughs> now, there's a whole history around her, I don't have time to get into it, but you need to know that the worship of this god wasn't casual or occasional, but it was a daily practice for those in the city, making Ephesus a hyper-spiritual city so much so that its consumption of idols and worship at the temple of Artemis became its means for economic flourishing. It was also a port city, which means that it was culturally diverse and was a place for different pagan practices to not only be introduced into society, but embraced. Historically, we know that Ephesus had a growing fascination with magic and the occult. So by the time Paul arrives on the scene, we find the city alive with the worship of sexuality, money, and pagan spiritual practices. No big deal. Now, look with me at uh, Acts chapter 19, starting in verse one. Um, we're gonna hop around a bit today in this chapter. This is a bit of a Bible drill. That's what you get when you get the Baptist girl. She's going to take you deep into God's word, into the trenches, and then she's gonna shout at you a little bit in the end and make you feel good when we finish. Um, I'm gonna do that. We're gonna break this down. I'm gonna break it down into three scenes for you so that you can hopefully kind of get the, the landscape of Ephesus, but I am gonna need you to hang with me. It's gonna be a bit like a rodeo. You ready? Let's ride. I, no idea if that's what they say at a rodeo, but I, I think it's quite appropriate, don't you? So let's ride. Okay, scene one. Paul goes to Ephesus. All right. Verse one, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. They were about 12 men in all. 
Paul entered the synagogue and began speaking boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So so Paul left them and he took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. All right, so Paul makes it to Ephesus and right away he finds this group of disciples who were followers of Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit and Paul makes his way to the center of the city, which by the way is Paul's MO when he's going to proclaim the gospel to a place. So he starts teaching about Jesus in the synagogue, but after a few months, there's resistance from the Jews, and so he moves on to another urban center, like you do, to the lecture hall of Tyrannius. And this was a school or lecture hall at the center of life in Ephesus. Paul knew what he was doing. And what we know about Paul is that he is relentless about getting the message of Jesus out, and so we read he spends two years in Ephesus until all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia had heard the word of the Lord. That is no small feat, and that is a massive effort on Paul's part, yeah? Scene two, the enemy, repentance, and a bonfire. Look at verse 11. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to those who were ill, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Skip down. One evil spirit, verse 15, one evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? And then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them and he gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. The word of the Lord. Now, what we read here is that the gospel begins to spread. There's a move of the spirit that begins in Ephesus. And in verse 13, we even see that there are some who try to deliver the spiritually oppressed in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. But that goes badly. That's what that scene just was. And there is now a clear distinction between Jesus's authority and that of the enemy. Look at verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, they came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. All right, here we read that the people of the city saw this distinction between the spirit or the God that Paul was preaching and the gods of their spirit or gods of their city. And they respond strongly to it, the scriptures say, fearing the name of the Lord. Now it'd be easy to read that as though they were afraid of God, which would make sense contextually, but it can be better understood that they were moved in reverence and began worshiping the name of Jesus. And as they did, the spirit now continues to move. And we read in verse 18 that the people of Ephesus actually begin to repent, to confess their sins and to respond to the goodness of Jesus, not only in heart, but in their lifestyle, in the way that they lived. In verse 19, we see that the people begin to tangibly respond to what God is doing in them. And thus we read about a burning or a bonfire of sorts. 
of the things that were connected to their old way of living, a burning of the things that they worshiped over and against Jesus. Burning was their way of saying, we want more of Jesus, we don't want more of this. And in verse 20, we read this line, in this way, meaning through this practice, through this act of repentance and consecration, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Something about what they were doing affected what God was doing in their midst, and this was only the beginning, scene three. Our final scene, a riot that led to revolution. Look at verse 23. About that time, there arose a great disturbance about the way. A silversmith named Demetrius, who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought in a a lot of business for the craftsmen there. He called them together, along with the workers and related trades, and he said, you know, my friends, that we receive a good income from this business. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray a large number of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Boom. There is a danger. Not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great god Artemis, goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself, who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty. Now look at verse 32. The assembly was in confusion. So the crowds gathered. The assembly is in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another. Most of the people didn't even know what they were, uh, that they, why they were there. And that is a, a word for us today. Uh, The Jews in the crowd pushed this guy, Alexander, to the front, and it's chaos. Verse 35, the clerk quieted the crowd and said, fellow Ephesians, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven? And he goes on, quiets the crowd, dismisses them, and our scene is over. So as the spirit begins to move, what we see here is opposition to it. A riot led by the name of a guy uh, named Demetrius, uh, a local business owner and silversmith who made idols, started because uh, the economy of the city was beginning to be affected by the move of the spirit. People stopped buying idols and paying temple tithes and the city freaked out. A spiritual revolution, one like the city had not known was beginning in the economy along with other things like sexuality and pagan spiritual practices were being impacted. So a riot begins amongst those who don't believe. And what historians believe to be over 200,000 people rally against this movement of the spirit in the theater in the middle of Ephesus, only to ultimately find that the riot they began ended up actually strengthening the movement, making it a revolution. Ephesus, a city once marked and named by the worship of idols, and witchcraft and sexual brokenness and perverse industry now becomes the birthplace for revival. And at face value, the formula doesn't add up, at least in the way most of us would understand it. Darkness has never logically felt like fodder for a move of God. In fact, most of us would view it as an obstacle to it, and yet in Ephesus, we see a provocative and curious alternate alternate reality on display. Bless the Lord. And this alternative reality seems to be marked by three movements, revelation, resurrection, and revolution. At the center of the story, we find the intersection of God's call and human living. Every person at one time or another has to come to this point. It is an inescapable part of the human journey. 
And it's collision of these two things that, it's the collision of these two things that actually shaped the journey of this church in a city that most would assumed would have, would have assumed was destined for destruction. Ephesus was riddled with pagan worship, with debauched practices of sexuality and pleasure speaking. It was a city immersed in a narrative of hedonism, self-pleasure at all cost. It's a God, it's God, though there were many, was actually the self and its fight, not actually against flesh and blood, but against something that was unseen. Darkness had taken the city and it seems that their eyes had adjusted to it. Do you know what I mean? How, how after a while in a dark room, your eyes begin to adjust and you begin to accept what you see is sufficient. It's now your own reality. This was Ephesus until someone turned on the light. And Paul makes his way to these people and when he comes, he begins to speak about the true God, this Messiah who actually has the power to disarm the smaller gods of the city. And it woke the place up. Paul comes and he preaches Jesus and people begin to see. Their eyes are opened. And not just to the goodness of who God is, but to the chains they were actually carrying. The proclamation of Jesus and the good news he brought brought revelation to the people in Ephesus, and they could no longer unsee what was revealed. Revelation is deeply woven into the story of Jesus because true revelation can only come from Jesus. And even greater still, its purpose is not to bring shame or condemnation, but to actually bring life and freedom to those who receive it. Revelation is an essential part of the kingdom journey because out of it, we're able to see things as they really are. And as we do that, we find ourselves catapulted into a different reality, one that allows us to move and see and believe in all that Jesus has come to give us. And if we get that, it changes everything. When the gospel came, the spirit began to move in Ephesus and we see revelation happening. The light came on and the people began to see what they worshiped. And what they worshiped was not actually a God or gods who could free them, but gods who actually enslaved them. They saw that what they worshiped, what they believed about God and what they truly desire could never be fulfilled by these lesser gods of their city because they had tasted and seen now the true God. And so their eyes were opened and they saw the unseen reality before them and they began to put away the lesser things. In fact, the scripture says they burned them up to go after all that God had for them. Revelation was the threshold to a new way of life. And it was a threshold that called the people of God to live into a different story. One that was marked by resurrection power. So as the story goes on, we see that the spirit moves and changes lives and people are healed and demons are set free, which is what happens when the spirit of God comes on a people in a place. And the spirit of God was so powerfully on the move that even a hanky could bring the spirit's power to someone's life. That's nuts. And we want that. <laughs> this again is where the will of God and human living meet. But this time, at this intersection, the people who had seen a light were now moved to actually practice and live into resurrection. Resurrection power is what was on display in Ephesus through Paul and the people. And while the community was totally used to weird spiritual expressions of worship, trust me, they knew that the power coming from Jesus, from what they saw in Paul, was more powerful than any ordinary sorcery or witchcraft. 
That's only an illusion. That's all that the enemy can do is try to mimic, never create. Because this is what uh, was brought when Jesus began to move, power, true power and life, and they knew it. And so this community begins to practice resurrection. They begin to identify themselves no longer with the things of their city or the narratives they've held about the smaller gods and what they're able to do. They begin to identify themselves with God's power, his promises, his victory over the enemy, and that shifted reality. And not just for them, but for the entire city. That's what happens when we take our rightful identity in place as kingdom people. They are, we are resurrection people. And as they walked by and with the spirit, they began to be agents of resurrection. So dead things were starting to come to life again. Demons were beginning to go back to the places they belong. People were beginning to be set free. Agents of resurrection, people who could not see could now see. Those who could not speak could now speak. This is what happens when we begin to lean into the authority God has given us. This identity shift was a catalyst for the move of God in the city. As people began to understand their place in God's kingdom and his story, they began to take ground. And I don't say that as a cheeky, aggressive, taunting sort, unless it's to the enemy, but as a, a statement more of what happens when the people of God take their place in the kingdom. People who practice resurrection, who carry the same spirit in them that raised Christ from the dead, live not only with a greater authority, but in a greater reality because anything is possible. And again, that changes everything everywhere. The people intentionally began to embrace resurrection life, which meant that they, in the words of Eugene Peterson, made a deliberate decision to believe and participate in resurrection life. Life without death, life that trumps death, life that is the last word, Jesus's life. The resurrection of Jesus meant that in Ephesus, life would trump death of every kind. Every God would be disarmed and every ambition and scheme and threat of the enemy crushed. Jesus would have the final word and would make a way for the people of God to live in a way that shattered the effects of evil and death. This is what it means to practice resurrection. I need a breath. There was a stirring in the spirit of Ephesus. And it started with a revelation that brought the reality of the resurrection to the city and it ultimately ended with a revolution. In Ephesus, there was a distinct convergence of the Spirit's call and the people's holiness. And those two things intertwined was a recipe for revolution. But it wasn't without a fight. Christian leader, author, and missionary Arthur Pearson once said, when disciples have a true revival, society gets a revolution. When the Spirit moves mightily upon the children of God, we may look for other mighty movements among unbelievers and need not be surprised if the devil himself comes down having great wrath as though he knew that his time were short. In Ephesus, we see that the move of God brought great resistance. Resistance because what was happening in the city because of Jesus was so powerful that the economy, the infrastructure, and the spiritual infrastructure of the city was being impacted. The spiritual movement changed the fabric of the city. And it was there that two kingdoms began to collide and the unseen reality that had been hidden was now on display. There was a very real war for what was going on and that caused outrage and a powerful response from the people and from the enemy. 
The riot was an attempt of the city to stop the movement, but what we see from history is that it propelled it. Now, revolution isn't a word we use very often, or if we do hear it, it's usually politically charged, and so we shut ourselves off and dissociate. But at its core, revolution is simply a transformative event that changes the direction of a nation, society, city, or world. A transformative event. When we get further into Paul's letter, we'll begin to see him remind those at the church of Ephesus of the transformative event that not only started, but has propelled the revolution they're living in. God putting on flesh to dwell with us, to change our reality, to flip the enemy's schemes on its head, to defeat death, and to give to us, God's people, a whole new way to live. That is what started and moved this revolution. And it continues to do so today. In Ephesus, there was a moment and a movement taking place. And it started with God breaking into a church in the middle of a wildly dark city that most people said and thought would never see revival. And it grew as people, particularly those who didn't believe, saw resurrection power on display. And it ended with a church embracing an alternative story, a truer story for them and for their city. And as they did that, the world was forever changed. From Ephesus, we know that the gospel went into all of Asia. Do you know how big Asia is? You don't, probably. I'm not trying to be offensive, but I don't think you do. Because I looked at a map and I certainly didn't. That's huge, that's massive. All of the word of God went to Asia. The Greeks and the Jews all heard the good news of Jesus. From Ephesus, the church throughout history learned that darkness is no match for the light and that Jesus can do his best work even when the odds are stacked against him. From Ephesus, we learn that our story is not so different from theirs. Like Ephesus, we are a city marked by similar gods and similar darkness, and if you don't see that, you're not looking hard enough. You see, whether it's obvious to you or not, our city is alive with altars and temples to these similar gods. But they just go by lesser names like strip clubs and bars and casinos and horoscopes and psychics. Many of our idols exist here in the name of pleasure, of good food and good wine and good sex and intellectualism and indulgence and industry and our rights as Americans. And if we look closely, the darkness found in Ephesus is not that different from the darkness we see. And I don't know, uh, you know, I don't know how to say these things in a way that isn't grandiose or inciting. In fact, maybe it's supposed to be, I don't know. I'm just trying to make an honest observation of the moment and the place that we live in. You see, I've been reading Paul's letter to Ephesus and I hear it screaming at me. Ephesus is a letter not only written to them, but to us. And if we're gonna get, if we're gonna really get what God is speaking through Paul to us this summer, not in a historical way, but in a life-changing, reality-shaping way, we will have to put on and find ourselves in this story, to find our place within the listener's mind and to listen again for what God is saying to us. I believe we, Bridgetown, like the church in Ephesus, are on a trajectory for revolution. The upside down kind, and I'm stoked. I am writing this all the way. Come or not come. Just Gerald and I for sure are going. And, uh, and, and here's the thing, here's what I know from even seeing this and, and studying this text, this won't just happen for us. 
It will demand that we, like them, begin to embrace the invitation of revelation and to practice resurrection power because it's from those two places that a revolution comes. And I want that. I unapologetically want that. Don't you want that? Yeah, we want that. So here our prayer. Lost my place because I'm spitting and moving things around a bit. No problem. It's a little lengthier than I thought. Now, this is what I wanna get into, some practical things, things I think we're gonna have to do. So let me break these down. You've got the three R's, because your girl's teaching, so stay with me. I think we're gonna have to genuinely embrace revelation, to embrace revelation, to allow the intersection of God's call on us as individuals and as a community to meet our human living, where our lives are at. We're gonna have to allow the call of God to intersect our jobs, where we live, where we're spending our money, all of that, and then from there, to lay down and even burn up and get rid of all that isn't from him or for him. And then to go after the other half of revelation, which is his wild goodness and his extraordinary power in life, and that's resurrection life. And then we're gonna have to keep doing this, by the way, over and over again. We don't just get a revelation once of the goodness of God or the things in our life that need to go. We move out of that place into something more. We keep moving deeper in as God keeps revealing his goodness. Embracing revelation will mean saying yes in small moments and in big ones. It will look like the confession of sin and the laying down of our idols. It will look like rejecting lesser things, not evil things or sinful things, but lesser things for greater things, for more of him. It will mean spending our money differently. It will mean spending our time differently. It will mean moving into different neighborhoods and embracing the invitation to lean into prayer to find family in the lives of those who live on the margins of our city. It will mean taking the revelation we see as God coming near and not just thanking him for it or worshiping him for it, but allowing it to move us into greater obedience and faithfulness to who he is. Embracing revelation will mean allowing the words of Jesus to wash over us and in that reshape and reframe the trajectory of our whole lives. And doing that over and over again. Revelation is the threshold for a new way of living. And it's in that place where we are propelled into the more of the spirit of God, if only we'll embrace it. Now from there, from that place, we'll have to practice resurrection, which again, will not just be something we stumble upon, but something we as individuals and corporately choose. Eugene Peterson put it this way, this practice is not a vague wish upwards but comprises a number of different discrete but interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way. Real life in, the, in a world occupied with, the death, with death and the devil. Interlocking acts that maintain a credible and faithful way of life. If we're gonna practice resurrection, we're gonna have to interlock with the invitations and the work and the power of the Spirit of God. And we're gonna have to do that over and over again until we reveal that we are credible and dare I say that we are offering a better way of life. Life that shines in the darkness of the death all around it. Practicing resurrection means getting weird. Comes naturally to some of you. I joke in, anyway, 
I'm not going to do that in the next one. It means putting our money where our mouths are, literally. It means prayer, not just at the gathering or in our homes or with our communities, but in the streets of our city. It means prayer in neighborhoods with people who do not look like or live like us. It means sharing prophecy at Starbucks and prayer for the healing on the bodies of those who haven't showered in months. Practicing resurrection means living lives of faith and trust in the one who promises to bring the kingdom of heaven through us to go after and to burn and to break for the things that Jesus does and to allow that to move us to go out of our comfort zones into the wildness and very scary and unpredictable and uncontrollable reality of the kingdom of God. The practice of resurrection will call and propel us as a people into a credible and faithful way of life, a truer alternative and a revolution that I believe our city can't ignore. But again, that's something we're gonna have to choose and risk, but at the end of it, there is promise that comes with it. You see, because what we saw in Ephesus, this perpetuated reality of the spirit moving and never stopping and an obstacle and the spirit keeps moving. This is the truth that resurrection life always gives way to more resurrection life, always. You sow things in the spirit and those things are sown in the spirit. There is a harvest, a return for the things we do that are part of the kingdom of God. And that return is to the kingdom of God and to the glory of Jesus. If we choose to go this way as individuals and as a community, we will see it change not only our lives and our community, and it already is, but change the city of Portland. John says the light shines in the darkness and the darkness cannot overcome it. Let's be the kind of people who are flipping on light switches everywhere we go. Revolution is seeded by the rhythms of revelation and resurrection. The intertwining of our personal and corporate holiness and the movement of God's spirit. And this is what we wanna go after. This is our invitation as much as it was for the church of Ephesus. The question is, will we take him up on this invitation? Over the last year, it's become clear that God is doing something new among us. That's why I'm feeling so jazzy, because he is doing something new in me. In August, I will have been at Bridgetown 12 years and 10, years, uh, 10 of those years on staff as a pastor. I've seen a lot of really extraordinary things at Bridgetown. But in all my time, and honestly, all my time on this earth, I have never seen what I'm seeing week after week in this room. My sister keeps saying to me this phrase, God is on the move, God is on the move, God is on the move. And I think that's exactly true. God is moving and I, and I believe we want to go with him. The question I've been wrestling with is how? And as I see God bring revelation about who he is and how he loves us and what he wants to do, and as we see resurrection power on display here at the gatherings and outside these walls, I keep asking, how do we keep leaning in? How do we steward this hunger for more and whatever it is that the Spirit of God is doing? And a few months back, God reminded me of the hunger I carried as an awkward 15-year-old. And he reminded me of that weird coffin in the middle of the youth room. And as he brought that to mind, I heard this phrase, and I wonder if it was more of a prayer inside of me, but it was more of me for more of him. More of me 
for more of him. We are on a radical ride, Bridgetown. And I think there's so much more for us. And I feel a little nervous about that, but I also feel really excited. I also think that in order for us to go after it, we will have to make more room for him and lean into building up our faith muscles, which means that there will, be prob- there will probably be things that we need to let go of as a community and as individuals. Things that as God continues to reveal his goodness to us, his holiness, we will need to surrender or put to death as a way of making more space for him, as a way of creating and becoming dwelling places that are holy for a holy God to inhabit. On the Christian journey, there is an official name for this kind of thing, a more deliberate term for surrender that is meant to produce more of God in your life, and that is called consecration. This, as preacher and theologian A.B. Simpson put it, is simply the voluntary surrender or self-offer of the heart. It is a choice to dedicate or devote yourselves to going after the more of God. It is the commitment to choose to lay down a lesser thing or a sinful thing as a way of making more space for God's presence in your life. And I think that's where we start. Now, I've had a lot of fear about sharing this next thing with you because I think it sounds really dumb. Um, but a few months, but that's never stopped me, am I right? <laughs> a few months back, God whispered to me about this thing in my life. And it started out generically as he usually does. I was processing my desires before him, but then he, um, as he does, got specific. And um, I'm not trying to air out all my dirty laundry, but I think that most of you, at least if you know me decently or well, if you've seen me on the streets or you've seen me in a restaurant, I am a diet Pepsi freak. And I know the shame of not being a Coke drinker. I'm from the South. Anyway, don't talk to me about that. And uh, please don't buy me a diet Pepsi. But um, this is it's so weird. Again, I told you it was kind of dumb, but I have this uh, little thing we call in the South called a habit that I couldn't break. And let's just say I've drank my fair share of those beautiful beverages. Many in a day, a fact, in fact. Um, it's my revolt against Portland or so I thought. So this is real, stay with me. Um, a few months ago, I heard the Lord say to me in response to my desire for more, say, I want your Diet Pepsi indulgence, among a few other things. And I'm going to ask you to give it to me soon. God is very sweet with me. He, he usually gives me a very strong heads up before we're going for something. So you can actually ask him for that. I try to <laughs> regularly, so he did. He literally did. He spoke to me more, he's like, soon. And I was like, okay. And uh, I know how all that sounds. Diet Pepsi is in no way sinful. I wanna be really clear about that. Um, but it was for me something I used to occupy my pleasure center something that comforted me and that brought consolation, as weird as it sounds, in times when I was looking for it. And so it made sense to me that God would use that weird and very normal consumption as a catalyst for more. About a month and a half after this nudge from him came, I woke up on a Saturday morning and the Lord said to me, I want it today. And um, I wanna be clear, this wasn't like some demand as much as it was an invitation. Like, do you wanna give this to me today? And uh, I felt it was so small and silly, but it was one that I knew and he knew would catalyze my attention and my heart towards him. So I gave it up. I burned it, if you will. And I don't have some glamorous wild story to tell you out of that, except that every day since, I have heard God more clearly and seen him in ways that I hadn't before. 
With more space, I have found that I am more alert and aware of him than I was with Diet Pepsi in my life. And I can't believe I just said that sentence. <laughs> but hear me when I say that means something. If we're gonna go after what Jesus has for us as individuals and as a community, if we are going to see what the city of Ephesus saw, light bursting forth in the darkness, if we are gonna go after more of what God has for us, we will have to keep making space for him. Just like in Ephesus, we will have to make more space for revelation that leads to faith that can practice resurrection that will ultimately lead to a revolution. As you heard at the beginning of his teaching, Paul starts his letter to the church of Ephesus this way. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle of Jesus to God's holy people, Paul, not a prisoner in Rome or a man about to be killed. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, living in his truer reality. To God's holy people who are set apart, to those who are faithful in Ephesus, grace and peace to you. Paul's opening words in this letter, while seemingly simple, are packed with heart and meaning. They are meant to draw our minds back to the story told today to draw our imaginations to the ones reading these words for the first time, and to cause us to wonder what they might have felt or needed to hear as they opened this letter. It's so it's no wonder that Paul starts out by reminding them of who they are, a people set apart for God's redemptive purposes in the world, set apart in a city called Ephesus. This was the starting point. This was the jumping off point to all that was coming to them in this letter. You are people in a place set apart for God's purposes in the world. Grace and peace to you.